a week away? Who's nervous? Well, let's look a little ahead today to talk about the real battle if Joe Biden, in fact, wins the general election next week. And that's the progressive battle to keep at bay the corporate lobbyists and the corporate mindset that will quickly try to take hold of the key spots in a new administration. Because like roaches surviving a nuclear war, these people, these corporate people never go away. I'm also going to look at two angles on the pandemic, why workers in Europe have had a slightly easier go of it than workers here, and how nurses are trying to get a rich hospital to pay a decent wage and give them the right pandemic protections at work. You'd think that was a no-brainer, but not when it comes to money. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us for our show for October 28th, 2020. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for its members and retirees, as well as private sector workers that it represents. You can do two things to support the show. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and make sure your friends do the same. Look for us on YouTube at The Working Life Show with Jonathan Tassini. That helps us build the show and spread the video content far and wide. And of course, you can become a financial sponsor of the show in two ways. You can go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and then go over to Patreon where you can sign up either as a one-time sponsor or a regular monthly sponsor. Or you can do that, as I often say, at ActBlue because we've partnered up with ActBlue. Come on! Why you make a political contribution this week before the general election? Also, become a sponsor of the show, either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis. It's a good investment that goes far beyond the general election because that helps this show continue to bring you all the content that you're probably not going to find in most other places. I thought rather than spend a lot of time on my election musings, because you can see them in full at workinglife.org, where I will be posting today or tomorrow my final update and hint, hint, I still think it's going to be a landslide. I thought instead on the show, I'd shine a little light on where the real battle will be after Election Day if Joe Biden does win. And that battle is keeping the corporate lobbyists out of government. Well, that's going to be almost an impossible task, but still a big fight to at least limit their influence. Now, check out this from a media outlet called Politico.com. And now I'm quoting a little story they had. Companies and the lobbyists who represent them in Washington are positioning themselves for a variety of Election Day outcomes, with most of the focus on a victory for Joe Biden. A Democratic president could foster major legislative battles over climate and environmental policy that were largely dormant during the Trump administration. And then the article goes on to say, this scenario prompted lobbying shops earlier this year to start tracking who Biden might include in his cabinet to decipher the direction they might take at the EPA and other federal agencies, according to interviews with nearly a dozen lobbyists, many of whom requested anonymity to discuss internal conversations that could risk alienating their allies. By the way, those allies meaning in a Democratic administration. Then it goes on to say, trade associations are also mapping out how to approach a Congress under full Democratic control, either with or without a filibuster the latter of which would make sweeping climate laws easier to pass the Senate, requiring only a simple majority instead of 60 votes. And that's the end of that passage. Now, that's the permanent government at work. 
the corporate lobbyists who have friends in both parties. And this will be a huge battle, my friends. You know that. And it's honestly one that is always tough to slap back the grubby paws of these corporate elites and their corporate lobbyists. So to look deeply into this corruption that really is at the heart of why we don't have Medicare for all, why the Pentagon is rolling in dough, and why banks and Wall Street rip us off every day, it's great to have on the show Jeff Hauser, the executive director of the Revolving Door Project, which is under the umbrella of our friends at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. So I'm going to play a little bit of the devil's advocate in your favorite topic, the revolving door and the influence of lobbyists and corporate-related money and those kinds of folks that have been in these administrations for as long as you and I have been alive, actually. And I start from my experience recently as a delegate for Bernie Sanders, and I witnessed all these letters that folks were writing, particularly protesting the idea that certain people might be in the administration. At least that was was what was talked about. People that were not really that uh, believable and represented some threat to the progressive movement and progressive ideals. And the first question that comes to mind is, look, they have the power, meaning the Biden folks, the centrists who are running the campaign and who will likely play a big role in the administration. So how do we actually influence this? And do we actually think after the election, when they don't need us, assuming Biden wins, that we'll have any influence or leverage there? Um, that's a great question. I absolutely think we'll have some leverage. I don't think we'll have all the leverage. I don't think you will see a cabinet like we would have seen had Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren been the nominee and become elected president, but I think you will see um, a much better cabinet than we would have seen under Secretary Clinton or that we saw under President Obama when progressives were not as engaged with the transition. Um, I think that what is our leverage? One, the Senate is going to be tight. Even if there's a Democratic majority, a handful of progressive senators can effectively deny any Biden appointee going through. Second, Biden sees himself, as he said, as the Democratic Party. And there are negatives one can draw from that, but there are also positives. And that is that he wants to be the center of the party. And that means he's going to listen to everyone. I think that that means that progressives who complain and can substantiate their complaints with real research and real reasoning, I think will get heard. That doesn't mean the alternative to Larry Summers for Treasury Secretary will automatically be, you know, Pramila Jayapal or Elizabeth Warren or someone. I think, you know, it's going to, you know, it may well end up being somewhere in between. So I think there's some chance on Warren, but I think the ability to play whack-a-mole with the most problematic corporate uh, Democrats is significant because Biden will want to have a unified Democratic Party. I think disunity within the Democratic Party is going to be a weakness, given that the Republicans are going to be completely united against him. But OK, so taking up your excellent responses, and excellent points, let's start with this question about appointees. You know, after the election, let's assume there's a Democratic sweep, because if there isn't, then sort of our conversation is almost irrelevant, especially when it comes to the U.S. Senate. Isn't there going to be a mood, let's not give Joe Biden too much grief from the outset because we have a lot bigger 
fish to fry. So you get a nominee who we progressives don't like. I'm thinking either someone in the foreign policy area like Susan Rice, who has come up a number of times, or you mentioned Treasury Secretary. I actually don't see that there's going to be huge opposition. Democrats actually trying to block a Biden appointee to a senior cabinet level position. I just don't buy it. I mean, I think if you go back to a lot of the work revolving your project and our allies do go back to the 2013 fight um, over Larry Summers versus Janet Yellen for a mm. federal reserve chair. And what happened is more and more research came out about, about why Larry Summers would be a terrible pick for federal reserve chair and why Janet Yellen was clearly the most qualified candidate for the position. She's no like crazy lefty or something like you or I, but she, you know, a progressive who, you know, cared about workers getting unemployment and would be willing to regulate the banks was obviously a lot better than Larry Summers. And we put that research out there and we got to the point where not only were Sherrod Brown, Jeff Merkley, and Elizabeth Warren opposed, but Heidi Heitkamp and John Tester opposed Larry Summers on the Senate Banking Committee. Mm -hmm. um, I think a world in which Warren and Tester are willing to oppose uh, Larry Summers under Barack Obama, one of the most charismatic presidents in our lifetime, probably the most charismatic, I think that suggests that the um, Joe Biden, who's much more of a, a compromise choice, essentially, within the Democratic Party, who reflects, as he himself puts it, a transition figure, I, I just don't think he is going to be able to force everyone in line. I think he is going to see himself as in a somewhat weaker position than that of trying to forge consensus. And so there'll be trade-offs. And so if the Secretary of State is a disappointment, I think that means you get have a better chance of doing well on another appointment. Again, we're not going to get consistent wins across the cabinet. I think if we go into this process with that as our goal, we're probably setting out to be disappointed. But I think we can make real inroads. And I think what's going to be underlying this in a little bit of my skepticism, although I would love to live in the world that you're suggesting, and I hope you are correct, is that there's this going to be this Trump exhaustion where people are going to basically say, let's first of all return the functioning of government, the functioning of the presidency, the Senate, presumably if there's a Democratic majority getting rid of Mitch McConnell. Let's return things to what they consider to be normal. Let's not fight over these other things. So that's my sense of the mood. But I do think we probably agree that we're not necessarily going to win a position where we want somebody who's going to be at the head of HHS, for example. It's going to be advocating just every single day for Medicare for all, for example. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're more going to be competing about shades of gray, but the importance of the executive branch is such that I think competing between shades of gray really matters. And it's not as inspiring and, you know, as fighting for Medicare for all or free college and other big, bold, progressive promises. Um, but it really matters to people's lives, whether or not you have an HHS that is going to work to uh, rein in pharmaceutical companies to work on marching rights, including at NIH, like and just really aggressively fight for patients uh, and fight against the rentiers who are making so much money in our medical systems and the private uh, sector, rein in health insurance company uh, misbehavior. I think it really matters to have people who are mission committed. The, commission, the mission of HHS is pro-patient. It's 
to you know make government work for people. And if you have somebody who really takes that into heart, even if they're not a committed progressive, if they just want HHS to function well, I think a lot of people will be better off. And I'll reference the Labor Department, for example, as a pro-labor person where those kind of appointments really potentially make a difference. And I'm going to guess, and this is your area of expertise, so educate us a little bit, that we're not just talking about the fights for the cabinet secretaries, but a lot of influence is wielded by the assistant secretaries, the people a cut below, the deputy secretaries. And that's where you can potentially have some more influence about pushing to have, for example, someone who's the head of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that actually cares about making sure that workers don't get sick and die. Yeah, um, that's a great example. Um, I'll, you know, occupational safety, OSHA is the acronym, and unfortunately my work involves dealing with tons and tons of acronyms, but OSHA is in charge of keeping workers safe, and under COVID-19, that is one of the greatest signature failings of the Trump administration, is its approach to workers during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Essential workers who are so often workers of color, low to middle, uh, medium wage workers, uh, be they meat packers or uh, truck drivers, um, they in America have very few safety precautions because Trump has terrible human beings at his Department of Labor. And Obama had excellent people. Obama's OSHA was good. Obama's wage and hour uh, person who made sure that people were getting the overtime they were entitled to and otherwise just standing up for uh, lower wage workers, that was a good person. Like we had actual people committed to the mission of the Labor Department, especially in second term Obama, but including in first term. And that made a difference in people's lives. There'd be fewer people dead, in workers dead in this country if we had an OSHA that cared about workers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's dig a little bit into OSHA because I do think it gives a good picture about the problems of the system as a whole. Even under Obama and the AFL-CIO, you work for the AFL-CIO, so you know this, every year puts out a statistic uh, on OSHA that says that if OSHA tried to visit every single workplace just once under Obama administration funding, it would take something like 110 years. So you're right that if we were in the pandemic and you had actually someone at the head of OSHA who cared about actually saving workers, there's probably a lot of people who would be alive today and wouldn't have gotten sick during the pandemic. But in the bigger sense, the system, the way in which OSHA has been structured, really is set up to let corporations continue to do really whatever they please in the workplace on a day-to-day basis. And that goes to the point that you work on so hard. These lobbyists, they're like leeches. And they just flood into Congress and, and certainly in the executive branch. And they just look for those places to basically keep the system intact, even if you've got a somewhat more um, friendly administration. Am I wrong about this? Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And that's actually part of what the biggest decisions in the Biden administration will be made in January and February. And the appointees will be negotiating with Congress over what is likely to be an omnibus spending bill as well as a stimulus package. The federal government spending right now expires in December. What they're It'd probably be a patch through, if anything, to get the government from December until January 20th or maybe a few days beyond. And that bill to fund the government for the rest of 2021, that is so important. Early on in Obama, one of the best things that happened in Obama in 2009 
they hired a bunch more civil rights lawyers for DOJ civil rights. The DOJ Civil Rights Division had been decimated under George W. Bush. That's the Department um, of Justice, just so we get sorry, off the yeah. acronym. That's okay. Yeah, I get my Yeah. And so the Justice Department's ability to fight for civil rights and its willingness had been crushed under George W. Bush. And Barack Obama and Tom Perez, who was his uh, initial civil rights director, they got an uh, allocation of money to hire more civil rights attorneys in the, their first measures in 2009. And they radically increased the capacity of the DOJ Civil Rights Division. They didn't address all problems. It didn't make everything go away. Racism did not end. But they made real progress. We think that approach needs to be wildly expanded across government so that an agency like the Occupational Safety Agency can get realistic funding that can allow it to be more successful. Uh, and we, I think that happening as soon as possible when those lobbyists are as distracted as possible. There's going to be so much going on in the early days of a Biden presidency. First of all, you're going to have whatever Trump's up to, which I'm sure is going to be crazy and it's going to be hard for people to take their eyes off of it. And to some extent, we should view that opportunity, uh, view that as an opportunity. We should have Congress pass the type of things that the lobbyists would go after if it were a one-off and they had time to really focus on this and talk about like, some crazy big government conspiracy to have people raiding workplaces on behalf of workplace safety uh, concerns. But they're going to have so many concerns. They're going to be so many cabinet appointments and whatnot that if we go agency by agency and increase the hiring capacity of the Biden appointees, we can make real progress. I just don't think the lobbyists will be able to stop it. And we should make that an early Biden era priority while there's chaos or the corporate lobbyists can really get their hooks in. But we're still working within the same system and framework that exists even in good times that really is not, from a progressive point of view, the vision that we would want in terms of the kind of society that we would like to see. I get your tactical approach is to make the best situation that might present itself to progressives, and I'm thinking of this in a progressive lens, but I think you'd probably agree that that's in some way, frankly, a, somewhat of a holding action. For example, in safety and health, we have to remake the safety and health system so that workers can actually, in the way they do in Scandinavian countries, shut down production if there's a danger to folks. Right now, that's not true. Corporations run, basically run the companies, run the plants, run the factories, run the offices. So my, my point really is, once we've done this action within the Biden administration, what would you want to then work on to basically stop this kind of corporate influence? What's the big picture? What's the, the dream situation that we would have so we can actually work to turn this country into something more progressive? We need to teach people that government can be part of a solution, that there are problems in their lives and they are capable of a response as we as a society, we through our government, through our democracy can address problems of corporate power and greed. Workers who are getting hurt at work do not necessarily know that there is an OSHA, that there is an acronym, but behind that acronym are supposed to be human beings who are expert in helping them. They don't know this. And so to my mind, the more we make government succeed for people, the more constituencies we can build up, the more possibility. The, I mean, I think cynicism is really one of the biggest struggles that progressives face both in electoral politics as well as issue politics and in movements. 
you have to convince people that there are wins possible. And so some of these smaller bore, more tactical victories, I think they build uh, experience winning, they build faith, they build power, and they put the bad guys, the corporate malefactors on the defensive. And I think those are all good things. I don't have a plan for revolution in 90 days or something. Damn. That's why I called you up, man. I wanted the plan for 90 days. So 90 days, we'll have nirvana. We'll have revolution. Yeah, it's a bit of a bait and switch. But I do think <laughs> in 90 days, we can put a lot of corporate uh, malefactors back on their heels. Um, and I think that's got to be the goal. And the more you have them on their defensive, and the more you're convincing people that there are solutions to problems, I think the more you empower them to think even bigger, to believe it, to have hope, to not give in to cynicism. And then you have your next big opportunities. Like a lot of hard work was going on in Black Lives Matter from 2014 until May of 2020. And it was that hard work and the incremental gains that they achieved that allowed them to uh, move forward so greatly in the spring and summer of this year. So I, I think we need to be build ourselves for the next moment, the next Occupy, the next opportunity for real big progressive um, change, I, I think you win as many times as you can before that opportunity presents itself. And the more you've won, the more likely you can take full advantage of those opportunities. I love your, as we wrap up here, I love your analogy to Black Lives Matter because you're totally right. The advancement of the debate about racism and the actions that have taken place in just the last six months have been, to me, one of the great um, positive things that have happened in 2020 with all the horrors that we've seen in other aspects. But if you look at the conversation about race now, and we, I know that you agree with this, it's not over. We're just starting it. But the advance on that has been quite dramatic. So I guess for you, the parallel is you win some things at the federal level, and then you can go back to the movement, to the base and say, we're only going to have power if we have more victories here. We elect the right people because we can actually influence government. But let's face it, right now it's a holding action. We've made some progress. We've got some influence, but we have to have more. Yeah. You have to say that the other side is beatable. Change is possible. And that's why we can go bigger. I think you, people need self-confidence. Um, we have an entire system. I mean, cynicism is the best ally that corporate and rich people have. Corporate mm -hmm. malefactors, rich people, they love cynicism. They win in a, a context in which people are disengaged. And I think it's hard to keep people engaged unless they're seeing forward progress. And so the incremental gains that were made in many cities from 2014 to 2020, I think helped steal people's spine for the bold actions that were taken this spring. But it, I mean, as you know, reform is not only hard and takes a while, but it also takes sustained engagement. We're not going to win this all in any one given period of time. And then once it's won, it'll take care of itself. And so part of why Revolving Door Project focuses on the executive branches, if the whole goal is to like pass some really good bills, someone's going to have to implement them. The bills are not self-implementing. And that's kind of what the executive branch does. You pass laws, be it in the 19th century, like the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Wagner Act in the 1930s, like how we implement them today in the 21st century is really, really important. 
Well, Jeff, you're the expert on this topic, and unfortunately, you've set yourself up here because I'm going to have to have you back on the show once if Biden wins, which I think at the point we're talking about, it looks somewhat likely, and we're going to have to then evaluate how all that work and leverage and infiltration, if I can use that word, how we've been able to influence it and where that administration is going with those appointments. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. The pandemic has ripped through the world, killing and sickening millions. But if you look at the economic hits that people have taken, it's been uneven because the pandemic has exposed the complete and utter failure of the system in the U.S., unlike, say, in Europe, to make sure that people can just hang on. No paid sick leave here means people couldn't stay home from work to get better. And if a person was sick, there was a good chance that she or he had to go to work sick to make sure that the paycheck would still be coming. And that forced that person into a workplace and maybe forced them to spread the virus. Unlike many places in Europe, for example, where, as I said, people have paid sick leave, not to mention universal health care. Both Europe and the U.S. had to shut down their economies. We know that. And both took hits in their output, meaning how much stuff was being made or whether cash registers were ringing in stores and restaurants, which they weren't because many stores and restaurants and bars had to shut down. But why was the unemployment rate so much lower in Europe in the first half of the year than the U.S.? It's simple. In Europe, there's a much bigger social safety net and specifically something called short-time work. Now, I caught this nugget about short-time work in a piece written for an online publication called Social Europe, and it was written by Maria Figueroa, who is the Director of Labor and Policy Research at the Industrial and Labor Relations School at Cornell University. And Maria, in fact, joins us now to chat about this program that made life a bit easier for millions of Europeans. So we know, Maria, that Europe and the United States both have suffered gravely because of the pandemic. But what caught my eye in your really incredibly interesting uh, article is that I think most people know Europe and the United States have not handled the situation in equal ways. And a specific way that you talk about in your interesting piece is something called short time work. And the background to this is that, as you point out in your article, the euro area in Europe dropped by about 15% in the first half of 2020 in terms of output. And that was obvious because they had to shut down cafes. They had to shut down factories in the same way that the United States had to shut down. But Europe, in fact, had a higher drop of output than the United States. But the unemployment rate was lower. So the logic question is why? And you talk about something called short-time work. So describe what short-time work is in a few sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, short-time work is a program uh, that consists in employers not laying off their workers. Um, it consists in having the workers work fewer hours during the week. Mm-hmm. And so they are they receive lower pay from their employer, but 
they receive unemployment benefits for the hours of the week in which they are not working. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it helps them, you know, that, that unemployment, that unemployment benefit that they receive uh, serves them to uh, supplement, you know, or actually make up for the, la the loss of income that they suffer because now they are working a reduced number of hours per week. Now, so is, the, is the difference between that and what happened in the first stimulus bill here in the United States is how widespread it is? Because as I remembered, you'll correct me if I'm off on this, here in the U.S., there are some businesses who could say and apply for money and say, we will keep our workers working, but we want money from the government for that. Where uh, And that was very targeted in some way. Not every company was able to do that. Either they didn't qualify, they decided not to ask for it. But in Europe, it's much more widespread. Is that the big difference? Um, is that's part of the difference, um, but uh, there are also many other factors. Um, yes, uh, w w there is certainly a, a cost uh, issue there. In fact, everything, all the factors are related to cost. Uh, but there are also other factors related to the structure of our safety net. So mm -hmm. I, will, I will touch upon the two. Okay. you know, uh, aspects of the problem. In terms of the cost, yes, uh, employers did not uh, uh, embrace uh, this uh, program, the short time uh, or share work program as widely as in Europe um, because there were not a lot of incentives for oh. them to embrace them. Uh, it is still more cost effective for them to lay off employees rather than keep them, you know, as part of their uh, payroll and, and reduce their hours and, you know, have them receive the, receive the unemployment benefits. And in some um, places, I think some employers in the United States, lots of them use this opportunity, the excuse of the pandemic to get rid of people. That's correct. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, that's a a very old uh, strategy or tactic that employers use. You know, they take advantage of recessions uh, to uh, lay off workers, right? So, and, and reduce their, their labor cost. Um, so that's, a, that's one issue, right? That um, the employers uh, did not, there wasn't much uptake, right? Mm -hmm. For the mm -hmm. program uh, because um, the uh, employers didn't see much of an advantage, right? And, and, and the reasons for that is because if they keep the employees in the payroll, they still have to pay for uh, the, the healthcare plan and retirement plans, if any, right? So, uh, and payroll taxes, etc. So, um, if we don't deal with that part of the, you know, of the structure of our um, employment taxes, um, uh, and also on with the structure of our safety net, you know, uh, we're, we will not see much of an increase in uptake for mm. this program. Mm. Yep. Uh, and, and that's the main difference with Europe, right? Because, um, you know, um, if employees, uh, uh, you know, have to work reduced hours, it doesn't really matter, right, to the employer or to the worker because they have um, universal health care um, and they have better retirement uh, plans. Um, so, 
that, that that's a big factor. And um, also from the standpoint of employers anywhere, especially in Europe, they understand perhaps better, partly because unions are stronger there and unions have much more co-determination. They sit on these corporate boards, especially in places like Germany. They understand that when you get rid of people, there's a cost to bringing people back in terms of training and other factors when the economy turns around. So employers that aren't just completely stupid and greedy, uh, as they are here in the United States, in Europe, and I don't want to overstate as if they're great people uh, in Europe, it's because, as you point out, the social structure and the structure of society there gives more leverage to folks who want to see a decent social safety net. That's correct. And the point that you raise about uh, the strength of the unions, uh, that's, that's very important. Yeah, that, that's another big difference, you know, um, um, explaining uh, the low uptake here for this program. And it is that, you know, unions in Europe um, have more um, uh, of an advantage in terms of being able to negotiate uh, good benefits for workers and for society uh, mm. as a whole. So, and as you yeah. point out in Europe, unlike here, some of the cost, the big one, healthcare, is not on the employer, it's on society. They have universal health care, unlike here. Now, one of the things that was quite interesting to me was that you pointed out that actually we do have short-time compensation schemes in the United States. And I think that most people wouldn't know that. They seem to either not be funded enough or just people are not aware of them. Yes, uh, there are many issues, again, you know, explaining why uh, so few uh, employers and, and even states, you know, uh, uh, adopt this program. Uh, it is true, uh, 26 uh, states have uh, this program in place. Um, they not always advertise uh, the program widely. So it doesn't mean that employers in each of those states know about the program. That's one issue too. Um, the funding is, a, is an issue. It's an issue because it is funded by uh, the uh, unemployment insurance funds uh, that the state run. But in the case of the of uh, situations like the pandemic, right, and, and this, yeah, uh, this actually happened, uh, the federal government stepped in and, and provided funding for, for the share uh, work program. Um, so that is one other thing that uh, I can't remember if it was pointed out in the article, but uh, uh, there should be a mechanism by which uh, the federal government support uh, uh, this program, uh, um, you know, in a in a better uh, way, and also uh, um, in an automatic way, right? Whenever there is a recession, right? Um, or a crisis like the one we're facing right now, there should be automatic triggers for increased funding for this program. Mm. And so that's, that's one thing, right? The, the funding is an issue. Um, the other uh, issue, and also that was waived, you know, it was waived uh, during the pandemic, which, you know, uh, really helped because every time uh, the, uh, the employers, you know, uh, have to, pay for the insurance, uh, that is uh, experience-based. You know, if they used to lay off a lot of workers, that affects their 
insurance yes, uh, rate, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so that should be like a disincentive, right, for them to lay off workers. Um, but it's, it's really sort of like a weak, you know, uh, disincentive because the, because the rates are not really that high, you know? So let's end with the macro point to wrap up this discussion, because I think you've made this point uh, a couple of times that really what the pandemic did, and I've seen this in many aspects uh, around the country, it really highlighted the broken system that we have here. I mean, aside from the fact that the government did not respond to the pandemic and the way in which the CDC was not ready, but in terms of workers unemployment, all it did was really expose the weaknesses from the lack of paid sick leave, for example, which most people have in Europe, to the point you make, that's really what we should address, right, when we get out of this pandemic is we now see how weak the system is and we need to fix this because whether it be a pandemic or another Great Depression, this is going to happen and we can respond to this either in a weak way, a bad way that hurts people, or to hold on, get people enough resources and support so they can hold on. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely uh, how I see it, too. You know, that this pandemic revealed uh, the weaknesses of our safety net uh, for all workers, you know, uh, even, uh, you know, uh, despite the very weak measures of providing unemployment benefits for uh, um, independent contractors and, and you know, um, it, it, it's and providing the, the, the short-term loans for, for employers not to, you know, lay off workers. Uh, all of this, despite those um, tools, I think we need a stronger uh, approach right, uh, to, to um, protecting workers, protecting workers in the broader society, because like you said, this is gonna happen again. And, and, and the pandemic just revealed uh, all the vulnerabilities of our system, you know, and how inadequate our uh, safety net is to protect uh, workers and, and the broader society. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Maria, for those insights. And we'll have you back on the show as we get into the new year 2021, looking at how we're emerging from uh, the pandemic or grappling with this as far as workers are concerned. Thanks again for being on the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's fairly obvious that Trump has the blood of thousands of Americans on his hands for his absolute narcissistic bungling and incompetence from day one of the pandemic. There's a slightly more subtle way that he's oiled that death machine and illness by staffing his administration with people who run the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which oversees safety and health at the workplace, who don't actually give a damn about workplace safety and who've let tens of thousands of workers get sick and thousands die from working in places where they contracted the virus. Now, I've seen this hypocrisy replayed time after time. Frontline workers like cops, firefighters, healthcare workers who are held up for propaganda purposes by politicians who bask in the deserved positive images of frontline workers in a crisis. But it, when it comes to protecting them and paying them decently, politicians go missing in action or worse. Rudy Giuliani was one of the worst of these hypocrites. 
He embraced the firefighters and the cops during 9-11, but when it came to paying them, he couldn't give a shit. Which brings me to the Oregon Health and Science University, a massive sprawling operation which in 2019 had $3.2 billion in revenues. So it ain't poor. But it's acting like a Jeff Bezos when it comes to paying nurses a fair wage and making sure that nurses are safe when they are doing their jobs during the pandemic. So here to give us the lowdown is Terry Niles, who is an ICU nurse at OHSU and a vice president at Local 52 of the Oregon Nurses Association, which represents in that local 2,900 nurses. Now, it's not a surprise, unfortunately, that in this pandemic, we're learning again, Terry, of another situation where frontline workers, the workers who are held up, rightfully so, as those folks who are really working really hard to save people's lives and also just serve people and make sure life continues. Because I consider among frontline workers, those folks who are retail workers, who work in poultry plants, not just those people working in healthcare. But here we are in a situation where you all put yourselves on the front line and yet your employer doesn't seem to recognize this and in the midst of this pandemic is in fact making life difficult and unwilling to, number one, give you what you deserve in terms of economic benefits, but also it seems like is sacrificing some of the safety at the workplace itself. And so maybe the way to describe this and start is to give us a sense of what nurses, your members, have been sacrificing in the pandemic and what you're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, so um, healthcare has changed. So, I mean, and how we deliver healthcare has changed due to this pandemic. Nurses have, um, you know, starting from the very beginning, there was, there's, so, there's so much uncertainty, like when they go to work, you know, uh, protocols that they were using before have changed, um, safety protocols around uh, personal protective equipment changed. And so um, my union has been negotiating for, for over a year around these protections and we were able to get some protections put, you know, you know, agreed to, to through the end of the year. What we're doing now is we're negotiating a contract where we would like these these protections actually brought into our contract and provided to nurses as we move move forward. Because, you know, because COVID's not going away and nurses and protections like having PPE, knowing how much PPE is out there, um, having um, a safety committee that talks about, you know, nurses, um, what nurses, are asking for and their needs is something that we would like the, the administration to honor and and to to get and permanently put in our contract. But and it is amazing to me. Maybe I shouldn't be amazed because essentially um, OHSU is almost like a big corporation in terms of its revenues and the money it brings in. It's just astonishing to me that you have to fight over this, and it must be astonishing to you. You're an ICU nurse. You've been right. in right in the ICU, this should be a no-brainer in a moral society where you're putting your lives literally at risk. And as you know, sadly, across the country, nurses, doctors have died uh, fighting this pandemic. It, it should be a no-brainer. Exactly. And so that's why it's been so hard for, for nurses, not only just me as, you know, somebody that works with the, with the nurses union there, but for, for, you know, just, you know, nurses that are working at the bedside, 
to you know kind of understand why this is an issue and why this is um why this wouldn't be like you said a no-brainer and why wouldn't why administration wouldn't support um you know nurse protection and nurse safety um nurses i think a cdc report just came out and nurses are the um healthcare worker that is most hospitalized mm. um and uh most of those nurses are women and black and most of those those healthcare workers are black. Mm -hmm. And so the healthcare inequities and uh, the risks that we're taking is really great. And um, yeah, it has been kind of astonishing and uh, something that I never thought that I, that I've never seen in my career before. And I've been doing this for 25 years. And this is a great point to underscore. You've been in the ICU. You know what it's like to care for patients in the ICU, but the environment there has changed dramatically, right? I mean, you didn't walk into the ICU in a normal time before the pandemic thinking that by walking into the ICU, you were going to lose your life. I, I get that there were other diseases out there, but this is just a whole different picture for those folks, your colleagues, who now probably every single day that they're walking in, although they're certainly focused on their work, they know in the back of their mind that they're facing a very deadly virus. Exactly. And, and, you know, if everybody, I, I, I know that, you know, all of our community has been, you know, affected by COVID. And if, you know, everybody has to understand that nurses are feeling those same effects um, that everybody else and those fears. And then you add those fears uh, of bringing, you know, COVID back to your family or infecting your family or infecting yourself. And uh, I think due to the exposure that nurses get, that's why they are, you know, they are there and they're exposed and the viral load is, is, is large. Um, it's, they're, they're more at risk. So, so let's underscore that for a moment, because that's an important point. If I walk into a store or I'm just passing in the street and something happens to cough who's infected and I'm just passing by, even if maybe a few spores, I inhale them, the viral load is not so heavy where it overcomes my system. It's possible, if I'm a healthy person, that I could fight that off as opposed to a nurse who's in the ICU and is essentially being bombarded, if I can use that term, it's not a medical term, bombarded by this virus at a very high level. Um, exactly. That's my understanding of, uh, of why... Um nurses are such at risk and why they are the healthcare workers that are um, hospitalized the most is because of their exposure and their continued exposure. If you can imagine 12 hours of working in a COVID ICU or, you know, uh, with COVID patients, um, clearly your risk is going to be, be much higher. So nurses are feeling this. Nurses are feeling, you know, it's, it's very stressful. Uh, their job has become very stressful. They're, um, um, you know, they worry about their families, they worry about their children, they worry about um, their loved ones, just like everybody else does, except for they are being asked to put their children and their families and their loved ones at more risk, more at risk. So um, it's, it's been really hard. I, I have to tell you, I get emails from nurses going, okay, I've just, you know, I can't anymore, you know. So this nur uh, nursing shortage, I can see that coming um, if something you know doesn't change and if you know, if there's not changes and so the things that we're asking to put in our contract these uh, safety issues and safety precautions and and uh, for nurses um, it's really important for for 
hospitals to retain their nurses and to um, uh, show them that they're they're valued for for what they're doing. And um, so, I want to move in a second. And I want to move in a second to the economic questions, but let's tie a bow on this. Give me one or two examples so my audience knows when you're talking about protections that you want to put in the contract, some specific ones. Is it that I want to walk into work and be guaranteed that I have a clean, fresh mask to wear? I mean, what's the the detail to that? Absolutely. We were able to establish, you know, early on when we first started negotiating uh, or when the pandemic hit, we were able to put together a task force that that dealt with uh, personal protective equipment and um, had uh, communications with administration around that. And we would like that to be codified in, in our contract. So that continues because that is going to not you know it's we only negotiated through the end of the year so nurses would like that we would like to know like what's our you know how much ppe do we have is it sufficient is it something that i can rely on um putting dirty masks back on on on, you know nurses putting reusing masks and putting dirty masks back on their face is not some is something that i really never want to see happen again um and there was a time when nurses were were doing that and i know there's other places in the country that even had less access to ppe than we did um ohsu being you know a premier institution that it that it is they you know they had ppe um it was difficult you know it getting that information from them was uh was important to us and it was important to the union I don't want to like pass over that too quickly because I think we have become so used to hearing those stories in the media that nurses and doctors have had to reuse PP, put on dirty masks, that it's like the behavior that Trump exhibits every day. It's become normalized. And to me, every time I hear that, I get enraged. And I think we as a society, those of us regular people who aren't in the ICU, have to be outraged every time we hear that because, again, this isn't just some simple thing. You're asking someone to put their life at risk and not giving them the basic tools just to be safe. Exactly. And exactly. And and nurses were feeling that early in this pandemic as, you know, even as the institution that I work for um, were was unsure of what was coming. There's like, is this going to be another New York? Um, should we start, you know, and so, um, so nurses felt that. And so there, there were some things that nurses, um, that we were able, when we put those, the task force into effect, we were able to kind of, um, make, make moves towards using personal protective equipment as the manufacturer made it. It's a one-time use, throw it away. And so we were able to like negotiate with that, with the, um, with the institution and get and get that in place, and we want to be able to to be able to do that uh, moving forward as well, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we want to keep those keep that communication and keep those um, and a, a way to get information for nurses um, out to them and have them have a say on what mm-hmm. you know on what happens. I mean, it's they're, they're like you said, they're putting they're the ones that are putting their family and themselves at risk every day to come in and save lives. Now, just in parallel, and this is as important, is the question of economics. And as I said to you when you and I spoke before we started recording over the last uh, day or two, 
one of the things that drives me crazy is the hypocrisy of institutions and politicians who embrace firefighters and cops and nurses and doctors because it looks good from a PR standpoint. And I'm guessing, have you not looked, that OHSU uses smiling nurses in their videos and on their promotional materials and uses nurses as a way of showing, hey, aren't we a great institution? But when it comes to actually compensating nurses fairly, let's face it, nurses are not going to get rich in this job. Um, it's one of those jobs that you do partly because you love it and you're committed to it. You're not going to get rich, but here your nurses are putting their lives at risk. And yet you've got a very rich institution, as I mentioned, billions of dollars in revenue. And yet they're not willing to pay you just a little bit more to keep up with the cost of living. Exactly. And um, OHSU needs to realize that that is having an effect on their nurses um, right now when they see that we have been in negotiations for almost a year mm. and that we're stuck on like really basic things like, um, you know, um, safety issues and, and then also, you know, adequate comp compensation for, for what they're doing. Um, I read, I read what some of the demands were. They're pretty, pretty modest. So why don't you tell us in a couple of moments what those specifics are? Because I think my audience will be shocked that this rich institution is standing in the way of what are very, very modest requests. Right. So our big request right now is um, we are really advocating for COVID safety protections, mm. including a review, a way to review personal pr protective equipment. We want that task force that I just talked about with nurse input into safety decisions. And then we want thing, um, we, we are asking for paid administrative leave mm -hmm. to ensure safety during high risk exposures um, that nurses could possibly get. Um, we also are looking for um, to be adequately compensated for for the financially for for you know with just basic you know um, basic compensation like adequate I mean that tell us what that is because when I read it it was pretty modest it's we're talking about decent pay and tell us right. what your tell us what the demand from the union is that's on the table. Well, we're asking for um, OHSU has come back with a very like. You know, originally they they offered like not not no even um, cost of living increases, and basically we're just asking nurses to be compensated for for what they're doing. I mean, um, working in the time of COVID has gotten to um, is very cost costly for nurses as well. You know, just like everybody else, childcare. You know, and being able to work. I've had nurses like contact me saying, I can't work because, you know, I have five kids and I don't have, there's no school, there's no this. So, you know, things, so things that childcare expenses, which could be like, you know, $3,000 a month aren't, um, they're having to come out of their pay to be able to go to work and stuff. So there, there's, you know, we're just ask, asking to be like, you know, appropriately compensated. So what's the percentage? Because uh, I, I, again, I think it's important to understand that what you're asking in terms of percentage pay is very modest. Yeah, I think we, you know, it, I, if I if I remember right now, we are at um, we're asking for three, um, three three percent the first year, and you know the first year is now, right? Yeah. So so we're you know we're we're almost to the end of that year, mm -hmm. and um, five percent. For the, for the next two years. OHSU has rebounded quite well from, um, from their 
original, you know, where they had to kind of get ready for a surge and stuff. So um, they've really, they rebounded and their short, the shortfalls that they have um, had because of COVID, they, uh, they've been able to kind of um, look beyond that. They may not be make as much profit as they, they, they thought that they were going to make because, you know, they're coming off some very, very profitable years um, due to the um, ACA and more people being able to, um, to pay for healthcare and stuff. So, you know, yes. I think that what we're asking is very fair and it's not unreasonable. And um, I'm really disappointed that OHSU has come back with the, you know, it, it, with just minimal um, compensation for what yeah, the nurses yeah. are doing to make OHSU. I mean, the nurses are responsible for making OHSU the most profitable hospital in this state and nurses are responsible for that. We have the highest acuity patients. We, um, we take care of the sickest patients and the sickest COVID patients. And um, so they need to kind of show their appreciation for, for what nurses are doing for them right now. Well, let me say this. Um, I looked at their financial statements and they had revenues of $3.2 billion in 2019 and they have very healthy reserves. So they are acting, as I said in my introduction, just like Jeff Bezos at Amazon. It's nice that they have this sort of veneer of being a hospital and so on. But when it comes to actually compensating people decently, I mean, at least you have a union, uh, unlike people at Amazon. But when it comes to paying people decently, it doesn't do any good to, you know, use your pictures and in videos, the nice pictures of nurses, unless you are willing to pay people what they're worth and what they contribute to making, as you just pointed out, the hospital that it is. Right. Exactly. So thank you very much for being on the show. And we are going to follow this and we will have you back for an update and keep up the struggle. Okay. Thank you for having us. And um, I really appreciate, and the nurses at OHSU really appreciate all the community support that they're getting. Um, and, um, you know, because our safety is community safety, right? Absolutely. And you deserve it for all the work that you're doing and putting yourselves on the front lines. Every one of my listeners and certainly people out there in the community should be standing with you both in rallies and in any other support uh, ways that to stand behind you. I mean, you certainly have put your lives on the line. And so the community should be behind you. Again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That'll do it for this week's broadcast. Thanks to my guests, Jeff Hauser, Maria Figueroa, and Terry Niles. Our editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union. Please go over to our show at YouTube. Sign up for the show. Spread the word. It helps us build support for the video product of this show and spread all this information to people who probably need it and would be grateful to you as you help promote the show, certainly on YouTube. And if you'd like to become an actual financial sponsor of the show, go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab, find your way over to Patreon, and you can become a sponsor either on a one-time basis or on a monthly basis. Or you can do that. You can become a financial sponsor of the show by going over to Act Blue, because I'm sure you're familiar with Act Blue through your political donations. Sign up as a supporter at Act Blue. Look for us at Working Life Network with Jonathan Tassini, and you can become a sponsor either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis. Thanks for being with us. Look forward to having you back next week.